on to Sustainable 254. Welcome yourself all to Sustainable. We are back. We had a few weeks off and now we are back. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast. Ain't we all? Yes. All about people and the planet and why, despite the British Podcast Awards, you can still trust us to talk... <sighs> Yes. Um, British Podcast Awards has now introduced a climate category and uh, didn't nominate us for it. No. So, you know. Nominated 10 other shows for it. 10 yeah. other British, Ten other British climate shows. podcasts. I mean, None some of, of them weren't you... even, a lot of them weren't even climate. But... I mean, we're fine about it. I mean, luckily, we don't seek external validation. So that's good, isn't it? It's fortunate, I suppose. That's fine. It's just as well because. Otherwise, it'd be really <sighs> cross about that. Anyway, despite the British Podcast Awards, we can still have a laugh and a chuckle about things every now and then and think a bit differently about something what you might have thought before. And what are we going to be having a little furtive rootle around in the bushes of the brain about today, Oh, Mmm, very nice. We are going to be rustling the leaves of the issue of woods. Woods. Forests. Specifically, Epping Forest uh, and all of the incredible stuff that has ever gone on there, that goes on there and that is associated with it. And we're going to be talking to an author called Luke Turner, who has written a fabulous book called Out of the Woods, uh, which I loved. I, I loved. One of those books, I just rattled through it. Uh, well, I rattled through it until I ran out of time and I had 20 pages to go, so I didn't exactly know what happened in the end. And Luke's very kind about that, sort of told me what happened in the end. But uh, I read the previous 250 pages very quickly because it's great. Uh, and it's all about, I mean, it's a kind of a, we'll get into it, but it's kind of a biography, it, an autobiography rather. It talks about some fairly significant um, things going on in Luke's knife, life and how that connects with the forest. And it is an amazing history of the forest and its relationship to people and the ecology of it as well. It's it's right in my wheelhouse, is basically what we're saying. Right, a few disclaimers. The usual disclaimer, so we do work for environmental charities, don't we all? Yep. But these are very much our own views. So if anything that you hear makes you want to dash off a quick uh, letter to the new Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and tell them to ban this sick filth, take it up with me and Ol and Luke, but not with anyone for whom we work. Yes? Yes. And secondly, we do talk about some sick filth, don't we Ol? We do talk about some sick filth. Sick filth, that's right. Very brass eye, Dave. Yeah, look, listen, if you are listening to this with kids or if indeed you are a kid, you may want to give it a miss because it is a bit <laughs> adult. Yeah, because that that's always works, isn't it? Hey, 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 well, uh, hey, 13-year-olds. Well, as, exactly. As per <laughs> precisely what I've been working on this week, yeah. that doesn't work. Hey, 13-year-old, there's some naughty adult stuff in here, so you probably want to turn off. It's like, where do I sign? <laughs> Uh, but no, seriously, we talk about some adult stuff, talk about some sex stuff. Uh, it's potentially not for the younger listeners. Potentially it is. I mean, you know, there's nothing that bad. Uh, but just so you know what you're dealing with, there you go. I'm done. If you like what you hear, you can chip into the running costs of the babble. As so many people do, we love them. But we need some more because our running costs ain't going nowhere. You can go to wobblywobblywobbly.patreon.com slash sustainababble. Thank you so much to everyone. Price of a cup of tea. Make Dave and Ol happy. More babble forever. Yes? Super. Now, uh, as we record, uh, there isn't... A Boris Johnson. Well, there is a Boris Johnson. Well, there very much uh, still he's, is one. Yeah. He's, he's, he's clinging on, but he's been told to do one and he said, all right, I'll do one. Uh, so we felt we sort of had to ask Luke about that, really. Uh, didn't intend to, but, you know, current affairs and all. So we started on Bojo. Do you mean Green Jesus? That's right, Dave. Dave's favourite environmentalist. Boris Johnson. I'm sorry, you must I be just, very sad. This is a sad day for I you. I just think, as Luke himself says... We have no idea what's going to come next. That's all. My productivity has been slightly... Well, it's been completely ruined uh, the past few days just because it's very difficult in the kind of compulsive way the internet feeds you news not to just sit on it comp- uh, constantly and yeah. so all day yesterday i was like right i'm now gonna do some work and i put on my like news blockers and all my internet blockers and then i was like oh wait a minute is that 
liaison committee. And I don't know if you saw that. I watched that with Chris oh, Bryant, the yes, Labour MP. Laser MP. He was the Laser <laughs> MP. Uh, Labour MP just absolutely sort of tore Boris Johnson to pieces. And then they had like the other MP saying, you do realise there's a delegation at Downing Street telling you to resign when you get home sort of thing. Michael Gove has told you to go. The shit adds up. The game's up, really. Will you be Prime Minister tomorrow? Uh, uh, of course, uh, Mr McNeil. Uh, but and next uh, week? I'm, I'm, but I'm here to... I'm rather and so this morning it was quite... It was quite, Thank goodness at nine o'clock he had gone because that meant I could actually get something done today. But of course it's still quite quite hard not to look at it. My, my worry is, is sort of... There's always a, a thing with at the moment where you go, well, careful what you wish for because some of the people lurking in the wings uh, are really horrible. And we've got 100,000 Doolally old people uh, who are possibly not the most progressive types in Britain who in the Conservative Party who get to decide um, who's next. So, you know, there's some charmers like Steve Baker, the old climate change denying uh, homophobe yeah, we've, and all these Friend people. of the babble, we've, we've had him on. We've had him I on. Know. Well, no, no. no, no. <laughs> He's no. been mentioned. <laughs> He's been mentioned, <laughs> yes. all right? Yeah. Yes. yes. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, now listen, talking of... Uh, of massive inhofs. Do you know what an inhof is? No. An inhof. An inhof? Well, we there's this this climate denying kind of lizard in America called Jim Inhof, who uh, is about 100 years old, and uh, we've named a section of the show after him, which we call Inhof for the week. Uh, and I think Steve Baker would be in there. Uh, but what should be in there possibly is something or someone called Throbbing Gristle, uh, and. Not for any reason as to uh, as to what they've done, but just because that's an incredible name. Uh, Hang on, do we like Throbbing Gristle or do we not like them? Are well, I want, I want to hear. I want to hear they're, because they're one of the greatest uh, musical groups and art groups ever to exist. This is what you know, I want. I this is what I want to hear. I don't think they're climate denying. I mean, one of the members was awful. Um, basically, Throbbing Gristle were a nineteen seventies kind of art group who emerged from another art collective called Coombe Transmissions who were based in Hull and they became very notorious for sort of stage shows involving lots of nudity and sex and um, they did the debut performance of Throbbing Gristle at the ICA in the late 1970s and it was so shocking that uh, Tory MP Sir Nicholas Fairburn called them wreckers of civilization, oh, and it was all on the front covers of the, of the <laughs> newspapers and, you know, the whole point of Robin Gristle was they did some quite extreme stuff, but it was all sort of around th- turning a mirror to society, basically going Britain in the 1970s was horrible. It was, you know, cr- there was corruption everywhere. There was the National Front was on the rise. There was this weird nostalgia and, and it, you know, it was just a sort of conservative and nasty place to, to live. And they were kind of scratching at that and sort of holding a mirror up to society. And quite accurately, because Sir Nicholas Fairburn, who... Um, uh, called them records of civilization was later exposed as being a uh, real wrong and um, an abuser. Surely not. So uh, th- that not many times. Remarkable that that ha- that happens. But they make some. They made some. I mean, some of the music's quite. You know, it's not, it's not toe tapping fun, 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 fun pop songs. But um, it, it, they were really progressive in how they use sampling and uh, cutting up electronic music. And they kind of run the first independent record label, industrial records, and they were massively influential. Um, but yeah, they they um, they did do some songs that uh, I'd recommend listening to. Hot on the heels of love. Um, a kind of one of Throbbing Gristle's more uh, kind of casual listener-friendly moments. He was a bit different to me. He was a little bit odd. <laughs> milky, milky. <laughs> Uh, now, look, talking of viruses and plagues on humanity, uh, Peter Lilly, MP, uh, who uh, was a, a sort of celebrity climate denier, one of the very few MPs in the UK who decided that doing something about climate change back in the day was a good idea, uh, also opened the local Wix in St Albans, I noticed when I was in there. Um, but more importantly, uh, you had a you had a poster of him. In your bedroom. <laughs> this is my most shameful moment. Of all the things in the Do book... Do you want to explain the, yourself? The sexual depravity and so on in the book. This is my most embarrassing and shameful moment when I... Uh God, I can't believe that my name is being dragged through the mud with this with this association. Yes, I, I had a brief a brief period of, of teenage rebellion, and where most people 
um, kind of get drunk and throw up over their parents' car. I was the Tory candidate for the school elections in 1992. Or no, I helped the Tory candidate and I put a Peter Lilly poster in my window. I'm very ashamed of this. Look I'm not ashamed you. of anything I've, else I've you. done in my entire life. And I've done a lot of terrible things. <laughs> Uh, but my support for Peter Lilly will haunt me to my grave. Oh, would you like me to make an admission at this point so that Luke doesn't feel so bad? You weren't. I was also the Tory candidate. You weren't. In my school. I was. I was. Seven I was years we've been doing this podcast where you've been calling me the bloody Brideshead revisited silver spoon. You were a Tory candidate. Yeah, I lost, and I wasn't very That's good. That's not the point! <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. This is conf- Tory confession time. Mentality, then we say no, no. The line is thrown here and you do not cross it. Now then, Luke, your book, Out mm. of the Woods, a couple, yes. couple of years old now, the book? Three, three I think. Three, three years, three oh, and a half, imagine. something like that, yeah. Tell us about that tell us about like the essence of it um the bits of it that i've seen is fascinating and dense and very personal and also telling some really interesting sort of stories about nature and wildlife and stuff but yeah what is it (laughs) go for it basically uh my family are from a place called Loughton in essex uh and that's on the edge of epping forest which is a 12 mile long woodland uh stretches from Manor Park, Manor House, in the Manor Park in um, East London, and goes all the way out to the Essex countryside. And I used to go there when I was a kid, and I was quite sort of thought it was a beautiful place, and I was quite obsessed with it. I grew up in a, in St Albans, uh, which kind of doesn't have ah. much decent, exciting countryside around it. So Epping Forest was always quite exciting. Quite exciting. It was that's a weird place, and. When I was living in London, I moved here in year 2000, um, and I sort of gradually seemed to be getting closer and closer to the forest uh, every time I moved. And maybe nearly 10 years ago, I started to end up going to the forest a bit more, and I just thought, wow, this, this place has got such a great history. My dad gave me some of his old books about the forest. But the last one that had been done was like the 1950s. And the more I sort of researched on the internet and, and so on, I thought this this place has just got so many incredible human stories within it a remarkable number uh, for a very small forest from you know highwaymen um to the kind of enclosure and destruction of the forest to artists living around it my dad used to see jacob epstein the sculptor walking through the trees um and then it kind of like countercultural things like throbbing gristle the group who i really love they had a track called epic forest i realized cozy fanny tutti from the band did pawn shoots in the forest and it kind of opened up that there was this sort of strange magnetism to the place that drew in artists people who were lost um people trying to find solace but who weren't quite finding it and all these sorts of things so i started like working on basically just the normal history of the forest and the people's history of the forest um but then it was going on at a particularly awful time of my life. It was in a relationship that was um, collapsing um, and there was a lot of unresolved issues that I really not dealt with um, around sexuality and some stuff that happened to me when I was a teenager that was sabotaging the relationship and causing fairly extreme levels of depression. Um, and so the backdrop of researching about the forest coincided with life collapsing and I met an editor who brutally forced me to write the two things together. Uh, And that's kind of how it happened. That's how Out of Woods came to be. It's a brilliant book. It's one of those books I can can sort of tell, because you're also a a music journalist, right? That's that's, that's my day job is music journalist. And I was saying today before we started, it feels like a piece of music because it feels like the pacing of it is beautiful and, and the kind of what I guess musicians would call like the golden section, you know, the the climax, like it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, and then, you know, the resolution of it afterwards is, is beautiful. And yeah, I love it. I love you. I just really love your book. I thought I'd say that. <laughs> Thank you. No one's compared it to a musical thing before. So that's, that's really nice. I'm, I'm very chuffed. <laughs> yeah. Now look, it's obviously out of the woods. There's lots of pictures of the trees on it. Uh, and it's all about this place, Epping Forest. And I, it struck me that we get a lot of people on on here who talk about essentially leaving nature alone, like rewilding. I mean, there are many different definitions of it. People uh, think different things about it. But but I guess 
broadly it's considered kind of just leave nature alone, let it do what it wants to do. Like, and sometimes a slightly, uh, what's the posh word well, I'm romantic, looking for? Romantic, romantic, yeah, romanticized, but also a slightly um, sort of misanthropic kind of a view of like humanity. Humans are a role. virus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Humans are a virus. It's like, you know, let's get humanity out of the way, let nature do its thing. Um, and that is kind of not really accurate in terms of like forests, right? That's not what forest has ever been like. Am I understanding your kind of historical analysis of Epping Forest in the right way? That it's it's kind of nuts to think that humans have ever been like apart from the forest. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've, I kind of have a, I don't know, I, I think we, we, rewilding is a complicated term and I think it's seen in a very simplistic way. And Epping Forest to me is an argument for the human nature in inverted commas relationship being a lot more complex and a lot more involved. Um, and that was one of the things I loved researching the book was the ecological side. There's a, the great Oliver Rackham's book, Woodlands, was really inspirational when he talks about kind of the ancient woodland uh, history of, of Britain. I really recommend that because I think a lot of your um, listeners would probably really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, Epping Forest is, looks as it is entirely because of human intervention. There is nothing to do with nature in the kind of idea of unspoiledness in Epping Forest at all. Um, they think from the pollen record thousand years ago that it was all um, small leaf lime trees or majoritively huh. small leaf lime trees and then in the Saxon period a sort of process of felling and selection uh, gave us what we have today which is hornbeam and beef uh, beef <laughs> hornbeam and beech pollards um, pollards being where you cut a tree uh, as, uh, around 12 feet high let it sprout again and then cut it on a cycle of every sort of around 15 years um, for firewood um, for building material and so on so you've got the beech and hornbeam pollards you've got oak trees you've got grassland because it was grazed because it was a it was a royal um part of the old ancient um epping uh, deer forest the royal forest of essex so there were, the forest laws apply to the land so if you're a commoner you could graze your cattle and have pannage for your pigs uh, you could take wood that was no bigger than a man's wrist from the forest <laughs> you know there are all of these rules that apply so it was just an intensely uh used place it wasn't farmed but it was industrial in its way so you'd have had charcoal burners up there they were there until you still got pictures of them in epic forest um all the pigs around cattle back way in the past in the medieval period you've had the, the, the noble people hunting uh, and it i just i just loved that it was this place that had all of this humanity going on. And I realised when I was walking around, these trees that were really gnarled and odd and had these kind of twisted trunks and then just that stopped in these sort of warty great growths and then sent up even more mm. uh, branches. Mm. That was pollards. And I was like, these are the most sculptural, incredible, yeah. beautiful things. And they're all here because people used to lop the trees. Now, when Epping Forest was saved in the late 19th century, the local people lost the right to lop. So a lot of the trees just kept growing. So you've got this very uh, distinctive Epping Forest landscape, which is often used, uh, that word iconic is used of, of these kind of beech pollards with a thick trunk and then huge trunks, eight, seven trunks going up from them. And they look incredible, but they're all doomed. You know, they're all going to fall apart because they haven't been lopped. Um, you know, pollarding is this incredible process that actually prolongs the life of a tree. It's good for trees to keep lopping them. It, it kind of keeps them vigorous and keeps them, it's a bit it's like a kind of bizarre form of plastic surgery on earth. It's like the <laughs> Botox for trees, pollarding. Um, and and I just I just fell in love with that idea and it just made me really realise that you know, why do we have to separate humans from nature? The, the the ecosystem of Epping Forest, the woodland pasture, is incredibly biodiverse because when, when the tree's been pollarded and you've got light coming in, you get an incredible carpet of wildflowers, different grasses, um, supports a huge variety of insects, bird life. Um, and, you know, what happens in Epping Forest when it's rewilded, when there's no conservation work going on? Well, what tends to happen in the heathland area, which there's, you know, some very rare heathland habitats close to London and they're in Epping Forest and acid grassland. If humans stop intervening, then that gets inundated by silver birch, bracken, brambles, and you just lose, uh, you lose those grassland areas, those open areas within the forest because the, the canopy is very dense because of 
pollarding hasn't happened, pretty much the only thing that can survive is holly. And so you end up with a holly monoculture and all the grasses and everything die out. So in Epiphorest, the idea of rewilding is arguably not particularly environmentally good for, for the forest. It's ecologically quite damaging. And I just thought that was, you know, obviously it doesn't apply everywhere. Um, this is a very particular form of ancient woodland. Um, it's not doesn't apply to all woodlands and so on. But it just, to me, it told me, it really spoke to me about how this idea that we, we should separate ourselves from nature and kind of worship it and just plant trees everywhere hmm. or let stuff go is not always... The answer, there are these spaces where humans and nature or the natural world and woodland can work together and, and, and you have a very beautiful, complicated um, interaction that's uh, like a virtuous circle. The, the, the humans can live from the forest and the forest live from the humans. And I find that very beautiful. It's also something kind of, what's the word I'm looking for here? Mystical or spiritual. And I don't mean that in a twatty way. <laughs> about the, oh, maybe I do. It's me saying it after well, all. About, I, like yeah. a, about forests <laughs> as a place. I'm thinking of like Midsummer Night's Dream and mm. Robin Hood. And these sort of stories that we have about sort of where magical, slightly outlawish things, the rules don't apply. And that infuses your book as well, doesn't it? This sense of a kind of forest or like an other space where you're allowed to, and indeed sometimes the only place you can do kind of naughty things, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's even built into our language. Like I write in the book, words like forest, is, it comes from the words from, for outsider and people beyond. And... Um, you know, the forest was seen as a place of threat and magic and usurp usurpation of the established order, which is, you know, what they are in Winter Night's Dream. Um, and I, I just loved that. It was like, th these are complicated places. And the fact that they, that, 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 that is in our, the very basis of so many of our languages and um, so many of our, like, uh, myths, the myth of Gilgamesh, all these different stories all around the world have forests as this, pla this place of otherness and strangeness and magic and oddness. And you know, you, and I, I talked to a, a wicker, a witch doesn't like to be called a witch, but called a wicker, who do, did rituals in Epping Forest. You know, and you see sort of um, sometimes in the very depths of the forest, kind of evidence where ritual behaviour has been going on, which sometimes spooks spooks the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> and you, and you get away, and you, you know, and it is like uh, I did. Um, I worked on an art inst sound installation in the forest a few years ago, and we were doing an ecological survey, you know, transect squares where you kind of you of a thirty by twenty meter bit of the forest, and we were counting all the species and what was in each square, and then in the sort of three D space around us. And just in that searching, quite intensively, one random thirty by twenty meter square of forest, which we picked because it had like a pollard and a standard oak and this plant and that plant. Just in that space, we found. Uh, Beer cans and beer bottles stretching back from from the 19th century. They could do like really? a kind of the evolution of beer containers <laughs> uh, for the past hundred and something years. We found like condom packets. There was somewhat bleakly one of those yellow hospital sharps bins full of hypodermic needles. So obviously oh, someone with a discreet smack habit was using that oh, bit of the forest. Yeah. Bits of clothing. And you're like, this is one oblong of a tiny oblong of the forest near Chingford. This is, this you know, the, the, the stuff that must be going on in here, it sort of almost hums with this this energy of people both enjoying the forest as you, you'd expect, but also getting up to things and being people they can't be in their normal lives. And that obviously then ties into a lot of the what I was writing about in sexuality in the book as well. Yeah, well, I mean, let's, let's talk about that because that is a massive bit of of the book and you know listen me and dave are uh well we're me and dave we are uh cis straight white middle class handsome what handsome <laughs> oh, well, well i was coming i was coming to that although i was talking about both of us so it's difficult to yes yeah, not quite right on average <laughs> on average handsome yeah yeah um <laughs> what was i saying uh, yes cis white straight uh middle class just very, very kind of 
I suppose we are the, the people that mainstream society overwhelmingly sets itself up to provide for and to accept. And therefore, like, if you, if you fall out of those parameters, explain to us why the forest, why Epping Forest, why, why forests in general have always been and continue to be places of, of refuge or places of, I don't know, places where, where you can express yourself and where uh, you can do the things that I suppose our religions and our societies and our laws in the kind of, in the main, don't condone or don't permit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I can only speak for the kind of sexuality part of of that. And I think um, in my experience when I was younger in these kind of cruising places or whatever, uh, there was gay men there, but I suspect mostly the men you meet in these places um, were closet, either gay men or bisexual men. Um, and they were from, you did notice that the, like, the ethnic mix of a cruising place um, would be a lot, uh, more varied than perhaps you get in a gay bar in central London, which would often be very white at mm. the time. This was early 2000s. And so it was obviously the forest did just on a very functional level provide a place where men could either be themselves or escape. And I, I'm not sort of, I never wanted to sort of praise this and overly fetishize it. Cause I think is I know from my own experience, a lot of shame and guilt and so on can come from those places. But, I think they're valuable uh, in that they do exist for people just to have a moment where perhaps they feel themselves. Um, and I'm also quite fascinated by how particular areas will suddenly become like that, become the magnet for this behaviour. How did that start? I find that very interesting. Um, I think, you know, obviously I, I can't speak about race, but there's writers, a writer who I really admire called Zakia McKenzie, um, who writes about Jamaica. And she was talk, told me about how for the, her ancestors, the former slaves, the forests were a place of refuge. And I found that very interesting, like white people kind of afraid of the forest. For black people in, in the slave islands in the Caribbean, the forest was where you went um, and, and, es and escaped. you were able to escape and kind of form communities in hiding away from, the, away from slavery. And then, you know, it is, it is complicated. I find it interesting now, like, who uses the forest? And, you know, race is a big part of that, I do think. I, I notice now in Epping Forest, the people in the, in the forest now, it's a lot more diverse than when I was going in up there, you know, 20 years ago or as a kid. There's, I think there is a shift happening um, in terms of n nature, in inverted commas, being stuff white people like in Britain. I think that's really positive. But, you know, I always think that's for other people to, you know, f from minority groups um, who uh, uh, to ex explore that. I'd recommend actually um, the Willow Herb Journal of uh, Nature Writing by People of Colour is, is a fantastic read. And, and that's great because you've got, you know, not me to speak on behalf of people, but I think it's really interesting when you, you you've you've got people whose voices haven't been heard in things like nature writing, speaking out. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. This Memorial Day incident showing 41-year-old Amy Cooper calling the police on a black man who asked her to leash her dog has now resulted in a misdemeanor charge. Please send the cops immediately. Manhattan's district... It's making me think of that. Uh, you, you mentioned this in an amazing article that you wrote, which I will put a link to in the show notes, won't you, all? I will, thank you. Um, uh, you wrote it under itself. lockdown. And I liked that very much. And one of the things you were talking about in there was what you've been saying, you know, that forests and woodlands, the countryside environment in Britain at least, have been white places generally where people of colour might be looked at funny for being in there. And then you cited that example of the uh, woman in America who called the police on that black guy doing some birding. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, and it, it does it really struck, really sat with me, that idea that like... There's something so white about the idea that we have, I think, in our sort of mythology, our story of nature, um, that, that is, can get a little bit kind of, how do I say it, fascisty at times? A little bit kind of right-wingy at times, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I've, I really... I, I, it, 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 even some of the respected nature people... 
um, can sometimes get a bit like, ooh, this is a bit, it's all about belonging mm. and and all of this sort of stuff. And I, it makes me feel very un, uncomfortable. Um, you know, I'm English, I'm very English. I kind of like England a lot more than uh, most people I know who <laughs> hate the country. I quite, I quite like England. It's very flawed and I kind of, that's part of, Loving liking something, I think, is acknowledging its flaws. But I see um, the word that is just so important and uh, uh, exciting to it not just be certain groups of people using the countryside. I mean, I remember one of the, well, I was up in Dartmoor once and there was um, an uh, Asian family uh, all sat down having a picnic by a bridge in the pouring rain. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is to me is what Britain is about, you know. Come here and have a shit picnic. Sitting down to you know, enjoy my picnic. In, Come yeah, here and people have a shit embracing time. that. But I also do think there's a lot. Uh, uh, even as much, I would say that the class is a, is a big thing yeah. um, as part of it, and that, and that obviously encompasses race. But I found, um, you know, I'm from a, I guess lower middle class background. Really, um, I found a lot of nature world or environmental world kind of exclusionary in its poshness. It is. Um, it, it, it massively is. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it was. And I found that quite, quite like whoa. Because um, I know a lot of working class people who, uh, you know, grow up in the countryside and things like that. That is just like, yeah, but it is. It is what it is. It's it's nature. It's where we work. It's where we exist. Um, you know, and it's why I think there's a lot of derision when the Guardian print their like five hundredth <laughs> wild hashtag wild swimming article. <laughs> Or forest bathing article of the year. It's just sort of like it's it's going for a swim. It's going for a walk. Yes, I know there's a bit of science behind forest bathing or whatever, but come on. Well, that you know this this stuff doesn't have to always be intellectualized. It can just be what it is. I, I think one of the things I enjoyed most about your book was when you were basically like, yeah, I went into the forest to see if it might be better. Didn't. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's, that was one of the main cure things. Of, you know, infallible cure of the forest is like bollocks. Yeah. didn't work. <laughs> and I and I was I found that that because obviously my life was a complete mess at this point, and I was you know thinking right, I'll go to the forest, and it's a place where my family are from. You know, not just that my parents born there, but as I write about in the book, like literally we kind of emerged weirdly from the forest in the mid nineteenth century on my dad's side with an illegitimate birth, and I thought this is the place that will cure me because I'm told nature are, mm. uh, yeah, I was reading all these like forest bathing, it's going to make you feel better. And I went there, it was, it was, it was a, particularly this time of year, actually, we're in, uh, you know, early July. I've not been to forests recently because I don't like it in the summer. It's oppressive. It's muggy. There's too much pollen. It's got midges in it. It's, yeah. It's, it's like all the birds have stopped singing because they're knackered after bringing up chicks. It's really gloomy and dank and nasty. I'm like, I'm not interested until everything starts dying in the autumn. Yes, it's beautiful mate. again. Yes. <laughs> you know. Love it. First thing you learn about surviving in the woods, boy, conceal your nakedness. Yeah, man. Okay. Slap a fern on there, boy. And and I and that this sort of um and and I was at that time there was just air it's just relentless nature cure, nature cure, nature cure, forest bathing, you'll feel better. And I was going I'm really not feeling better. I've gone f- into the forest and I've had a hallucination of a man about to hang himself and I had to run out of the forest screaming. This is this is not working. And I think there's a it's it's a bit it's again it's one of these exclusionary things that, you know, you, we have to be actually be quite careful. Uh, if we're telling people, go into nature, it'll make you feel better. Um, and then it doesn't. You're going to feel worse. You're going to feel like, if nature can't cure me, then I'm doomed, you know. And as, as somebody came up to me at a book event and, and said, thank you for writing this because, you know, I suffer from depression and my friend friends tell me to go to these beautiful woods where they go when they're feeling sad and I drive there and I get out of the car and I look at the trees and I'm just like, I cannot go in there. It looks, it looks terrifying and it's going to send me off over the edge. And that's just not something that's acknowledged. Uh, I think. Yeah. Um, if you can't, yeah. you can't cure yourself by uh, taking a photo of you in the middle of a lavender field and putting it on Instagram, then, you know, the yeah, problem exactly, is yours. It, exactly. And it really does become that whole sort of well nature wellness thing then becomes a sort of, Instagrammy hashtag self care hashtag blessed <laughs> nonsense, which is just so toxic. That stuff. I just, I, I, you know, it's supposed to be empowering and everything. Maybe it is for some people, but it just makes me feel terrible. Um, but you know, it's not to say I, I you know, I, you know, I, in, in the book, I write about how um, 
I ended up doing conservation work in the forest and how that was just this incredible physical experience. The endorphin relief release from that was like what people must get when they go to the gym, which I refuse, I can't possibly do. It's terrifying. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I love the forest. So some, sometimes in the, like in the spring, particularly when everything's kind of just going, and in the autumn, when in Epping Forest, when you, you just the, the hornbeam and beach and the oaks, you, you've got such an array of different leaves, like the, the, colors in the autumn are just so psychedelic mm. and mind-blowing mm. and, and on a kind of beautiful clear day in the autumn when you go in the forest and it's quiet and still and a bit cold that is my absolute favorite time it just it gives me a huge amount of joy so i'm not i'm not you know it's not kind of you know i've moved since writing the book and the forest is literally six minutes walk away which is amazing i'm so happy it's here um and i'd go there and i have really lovely walks but then i went i went for a walk in the forest oh, what, three four weeks ago and it was like being in a set from a victorian horror <laughs> it was like everything was really silent there were these crows just being quite snide and going, <laughs> making weird noises and then i found like an old garden roller uh, you know those old kind of cast iron things just hidden oh, in the- like you might use to crush people's feet yeah, that kind of yeah. thing, you know. And and then there was like all these, like there was a swing and there was just a bit of wood attached to it, just sort of gently spinning. And the whole place was just really creepy. Um, <laughs> and it is, you know, and that's what I kind of love about woodland is that, you know, you it depends on the weather. It depends on your, the external weather and it depends on your internal weather, what your experience of the forest, woodland is going to be, which is why they're amazing places because they're never the same. They're never the same. Hi, I'm Arabella, and you're listening to Sustainababble. We talked earlier about Inhoff of the Week, where we like to put a particular git into Inhoff Corner. I'm wondering whether this week we might put God into Inhoff Corner, because uh, something that I think comes across in your book is the kind of... um, oppressive kind of Christian morality stuff. And like I've been thinking about that, about how, in a way, it makes people run away and rebel, doesn't it? Like, I'll, I'll mention this to me, and it's true. If I think of people who are vicar's sons, as I think you are, like, often people who are vicar's sons are the ones that are the most kind of thinking about nonconformity and kind of running away from it all and stuff like that. Um, so what do you reckon, like, is, is, is this all God's fault that we that we have this strange view about how we should behave and also what nature is. It all go back to that sort of stuff. Um, ah, see, this is, you get into some intense philosophical and theological uh, yes, conundrums. that's right. Um, see, my my view, my I really didn't want to write a book that was kind of like, I grew up religious and it messed me up and I, I hate I hate God. H8. Uh, God. Uh, I don't think you um, did. I don't think you did. Like, it's very... Yeah, exactly. No, that, that, I think you handled that, that incredibly that sensitively. My, like, you're, you know, you're... Yeah. And I think that's because, you know, it, it absolutely shaped me in and in many positive ways, to be honest. Like, um, you know, the love I got from my family, apart from the stuff around sexuality, was was incredible. The kind of... Mor- the general morality of Christianity, I think, is amazing. I find that Tom Holland's writing very interesting about kind of how, you know how can we reject it in the West? Because it literally shaped everything. Mm. It's, 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 it's Christianity is behind pretty much everything um, in our states and our philosophy and morality and politics and so on. So I kind of, you know, I, I, I think the, weirdly through writing the book and going to Forest, I have a sort of quite a good relationship with, with himself up or themselves upstairs <laughs> these days in a kind of like, well, yeah, I do actually think some, something there, the forest and, na- and nature in commas makes me believe in God, to be honest, when I go into the forest and I just find it right. the most mind blowing place and just the beauty of it and the kind of intricacy of everything and the way an ecosystem works together. And I don't mean it's like, it's just very difficult for us as humans to kind of get outside the idea of the, projecting ourselves onto God. So that's design, you know, the idea of a designer. I don't think God is that. I think God is something far more cosmic and wonderful and beautiful. And I think you can actually access that in forests, possibly, um, you know, with, with a bit of stimulation of or, or mind divergence of some some sort can help access that sort of this sense of great interconnectivity. Um, and I happen to, I suppose, 
have the Christian interpretation of God as the thing that is is who I am. So, um, unfortunately, yeah, there is a huge amount of uh, environmental destruction that goes on on with the kind of idea that God, you know, I, th- I think it's a misreading of, of Scripture when people say God gave us the world to do as we please with it. It's like, well, no, I think God actually said you are the stewards of the world and you have to look after it. And, and that's a big theological debate going on now between... Um, Christian, um, you know, Christians uh, who people who call themselves Christians, who I think aren't in America particularly, or or in Catholic Brazil, who are very destructive of the environment, and the kind of ecological uh, Christians, the uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion Christian movement. Mm. I, I have a lot of admiration for, um, and and I think they they speak very well. So I think it's you know it's a uh, it's it's always complicated like the relationship with God I think for anyone uh, anyone who takes faith seriously it's always going to be a difficult and complicated relationship um, that that relationship with what, whatever the concept of God is I think it's when people find religion easy and a crutch that's when it becomes bad and they tend to be the people I think who make up the toxic stuff. Uh, and or misinterpret things to be to the kind of their own very human human minded selfish ends, and that's the end of uh, thought for the day. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I think in that place, you see, Pete, it'd be a crime to tell people about God. You see, well, I've never told any about God, Dad. Never um, told anyone. I haven't mentioned it to. A but soul. yeah, is there is there a soul in St Albans? Help! Like, has it changed? Have you been? Well, have I you think- been- you realise I'm not putting in St Albans chat. Yes, you are. Simple, yes, you? you are. It's important. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> well, I think St Albans is, it's not just St Albans, it's a kind of archetype for a particular kind of uh, s- small town Britain. I think lots of places, like, it's a beautiful place in many ways. Like the, there's lovely old um, houses, it's a big cathedral. I think it's different. The nineties, it was weird in that it was very violent on a Friday night. There would be like blood on the streets and massive brawls, and you really? had to kind of be very careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, me and my friends would we have to pretty much sprint from getting our heads kicked in every Friday night. Wow, it was nuts because everyone people used to come on the train from like Luton and Watford and Bedford because it had massive pubs all in the town centre. So people would go there for a night out and just get tanked up on lager and then just want to batter each other. And it was that thing of going. You're looking at my bird. No, you puff then. Oh, I can't win this one. Time to run. Um, and me and my friends were quite fruity, I suppose. I had like red hair. My friend Jeremy had long hair. You know, we were quite willowy sort of suede fans. So it was, we were, you know, and it was a very homophobic time and there was a lot of gay bashing and stuff like that. So, um, and it was actually, you know, n- nature and Epping Forest and things like that was the kind of mental escape in a way. You know, I just, you know, I used to imagine what it would have been like in Snorbans without, in the old days, you know, which is maybe why I'm a bit suspicious of some of the kind of, wouldn't it be better if all the humans went away ecology stuff? Because I kind of used to feel that a little bit. Wouldn't it be nice if Snorbans was just a little high street with all these nice houses and there was woodland around it and, and everything? And of course, back then it was probably really stabby and like high <laughs> women lurking everywhere and everyone died of, of, of like the plague and everyone had like massive warts and rickets and everything. It would have been awful. Um, you know, it's that, that, that peril of wanting to return to some prelapse area niddle. It was just, you know... Everybody smelled bad, <laughs> uh, and you died young. And then, then the Lib Dems got in, and uh, yeah, and then, then it was fine. Yeah. It was fine. <laughs> Dolly say he's forfeited his rights to society yeah. by doing so much damage to society. Uh, now look, we've we've got a lot of well, we think we've got a lot of younger listeners, certainly younger than me and Dave, uh, who frankly don't know they're born when it comes to uh, accessing smut because <laughs> it's all available on your phone with barely the bat of an eyelid. Uh, but for people of our generation, us old timers, you know the process of as you. It's very memorably put it in your book, satisfying eyes and arm, which if that's your phrase, 
Yeah, it is actually. Did I put that in? That's have one of those. <laughs> Bloody love that. Uh, so satisfying eyes and arm meant finding we had to, you know, we had to find mags, real magazines, uh, and crucially not be found with those magazines. Uh, and it was a very logistically challenging thing to do. Um, but why, as you point out in the book, so often were these mags in in like in nature? Why were they in bushes? Why were they in the edge of forest? Like what what is it about about the woods and woodlands that sort of lends itself to grot rags yeah <laughs> it's, it's the words for them are so good grot mags grumble mags jacks jazz mags it's brilliant um I, I it's just it's just part of that kind of a thing that i it's all very wrong and bad but i kind of love that sort of 70s 80s smutty englishness <laughs> you know um and it was the thing sandpit lane actually in snow oh, yeah. uh, was a particular particular Grumble mag, uh, grumble mag depository. <laughs> but I think, I, I mean, I, I, I suspect there were sometimes very bad motives uh, for people putting them in these places. To be honest, I think some of it would have been kind of old pervy men kind of putting them there. Someone's going to find that. Yeah. yeah, I do think that was probably part of it. I mean, I guess it's a simple place of concealment, but that you know that that you in these sort of urban suburban areas you got, you got some bushes and then you know that's where you'd get rid of something maybe people had nicked them or their like girlfriend had found them or their wife you know or, or you know just you just suddenly get terrified that you, you, your mum or your partner's going to be cleaning the house and find your grumble mag so you go shit better get down the bushes and chuck them in <laughs> um but it was like this sort of weird it, it like it, it, it sort of exchange thing, wasn't it? It's like this sort of currency of of grot in the in the bushes that would get passed around, and yeah, so the modern um, equivalent is the sort of terribly wholesome um, sort of libraries that have popped up in old um, telephone boxes and and things. Yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. Oh, ex- maybe, maybe that's the way of reviving the tradition. Just start dumping grumble mags <laughs> in those uh, little libraries next to Bill Bryson books. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe we need to revive it. Um, but you know, there was there's. I, it was it was it was kind of odd. I sort of actually I do think that it was a lot healthier finding a copy of Razzle in a bush than like what now with one click you can get. You know, and as I write about in the book, you know, I do believe that um, things like pornography are addictive. Uh, I kind of I had a lot of trouble with um, with that sort of stuff in the past, and thankfully have been kind of okay with it for a while now. But I hundred percent know that it is addictive because I've felt addicted to grumble and I've got friends who have as well and know you know know people who have been and I think you know pornography now teaches violence and the expectations of what people expect actually now from partners they've just met are pretty extreme and I think this sort of whole sex positive movement's gone a bit far and actually if all the pornography was able to be sucked off the internet now, so to speak. no, so to speak, and we could return to the days of a couple of grumble mags in the bushes. I think the society would actually be a better place. So, when next time I stand for conservative, uh, <laughs> it's still there, it's still there. Oh, he, he, wants um, to sh- he wants to shut everything down and ban well, this sick filth. That's when I go into do. politics, I'm gonna, yeah, remove pornography from the internet and put it back where it belongs in nature, <laughs> well, in some brambles. I mean, as we record, there, there is a position that's opened up. Uh, at the top of the Conservative Party, so maybe this can be the platform I stand on. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do any worse. Luke, thank you so much for coming on Sustainable and giving us your time. Uh, tell us, just remind people what the name of your book is, how they can get it, bonus points for that not being off the awful place, and then any other things you've done which you'd like to draw attention to and how people can follow you in that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, it's called Out of the Woods. It's out on Weidenfeld and Nicholson, and you can buy it in all good, in ideally independent bookshops. Mm. That would be nice, wouldn't it? You know, let's not give it to these nasty websites that are just as bad as... Books on the Hill in St Albans, that's where you need to go. I wonder if you can buy... Books on the Hill in St Albans. If you're in St Albans and you want to see me slag off the place you live, (laughs) you can go and buy it in Books on the Hill. Um, And you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, Luke Turner Esquire, A-E-S-Q, which is slightly grander than, you know, it should need. But uh, anyway, and... 
I've got another book coming out next year, which is about masculinity and sexuality and how we remember the Second World War. Oh, wow. And how wow. that shaped cool. our kind oh, of politics wow. and so on. So, yeah, look out for that next spring. And you are the editor of The Quietus. Oh, yeah, what, that's what is, it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm also editor of The Quietus, co-editor and co-fan of The Quietus, which is a uh, online music magazine. We used to be a lot more mainstream than we are. We kind of cover the... Uh, low audience underground now but it's uh, you know it, it, we uh, just cover stuff we really care about and we love and we have lots of lovely subscribers who uh, keep us going which is great um, so yeah that's thequietus.com that is just about it for another episode of Babble thank you very much indeed Luke thank you yes for for writing the book which I heartily recommend and for being great fun uh, and proper interesting and thoughtful and thought provoking in the chat Uh, thank you Luke you are ace thank you Thank you. So I was going to thank you. I'll say, oh. No, I'll oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, no, thank you. No, no. Thank you. I'll oh, no. Particularly this week. Thank you for doing so much of the work. I've had a migraine today. I've had to bail out of some stuff. You stepped in. Thank you very much, top chap. Well, that's more than all right. Uh, well, I was well done. God's sake, this is going to get like an Oscars acceptance speech. Well done you for battling on. Well done Dickie Moore for writing your music. Well done Arthur Stovall for doing the drawings. Yeah. Uh, well done everyone who gives us money. If you're not one of those people and you'd like to be, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash sustainable and give us some money. Thank you very much to everyone who does. Uh, and if you would like to do something nice but you haven't got cash, you can leave us a healthy review on that there iTunes ideally five stars and even more ideally with actual words that you have come up with yourself and you have written down yourself saying why you like the podcast because it makes the algorithms uh, do their algorithm thing yeah if you could get on with it and leave some reviews that'd be nice we need to make that one star review we got the other day go away so if you could push we got a one star yeah we're sorry to break this to you live on air yeah we did yeah yeah Shit. What did they say? Oh, go and read that. Yeah, so make that go away. And if you like Babel, make that one go away and say why wrong. You can get in touch with us. We are on the internet at Facebook on Sustainababel or whatever it is. If you find us on the Twitter at the Babel Wagon, if you want to interact with Ol on the Twitter, who pretends he's not on Twitter, but he is, he's running the Babel's thing. He's on on that. And and we're at hello at sustainababel.fish for your emails. This does not apply to you if you are a PR company trying to sell us shit. (laughs) Right. Yes, I noticed. I'm not the only one who uses our Twitter account. I noticed you got quite shousy on there about <laughs> <laughs> about PR companies sending us shit. Oh, hey, here we... here's, here's, here's a thing. Here's something our chief executive would like to say. Would you like a chat about it now? Like, no, we don't want to <laughs> chat about it now. I've got a job to do. Anyway, are we done? We're done. Thank All you, right. Dave. Go and rest your pretty little head. Okay. Uh, and go back and listen to some of the archive things if you finish this. Uh, but we'll be back next week with more babble. Bye! Bye!